Good morning, brothers and sisters. So today's reading is um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17 to 40. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, the troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophet are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the bull, the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And then they took the bull it was given, that was given to them. And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all, pe to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that has been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, as great as would contain two sheaves of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, 
Fill four jars of, with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And, what, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the Perkishon and slaughtered them there. The word of God. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here with you today. So as we mentioned this year, we've been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. Each week we've had readings that have taken us through the story of the Bible to read on our own during the week. And then each Sunday we've had a sermon that comes from one of the readings from the previous week. And this week we have been in 1 Kings. And we started our journey through the Bible in the beginning with creation. We saw God make everything. And then we saw God's people living in God's world, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. It was good. It was the way things are supposed to be. And then humanity tried to usurp God's rule. They tried to put themselves in God's place. And when that happened, trouble and death entered the world. But God didn't give up on humanity. He came down. He chose one man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family. And through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world. But then Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, became slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And it looked like God's plan had sort of hit a big bump in the road. But God rescued Israel. He miraculously saved them from their slavery. He brought them out into the promised land with the goal that once again, in the promised land, Israel could be God's people, living in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing, the way it's supposed to be all over again. But just like the first time around, Israel turned away from God. Trouble came again. Israel, generation after generation, rebelled against God. They turned to idols and worshiped idols instead of the true God again. And eventually, as part of their rebellion, they said, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We want a human king just like all the other nations have. So God gave them what they asked for, and they, they had a couple of good kings, like King David. We've spent a few weeks looking at him recently. But David's grandson, a man named Rehoboam, was a very foolish man. He was, made such foolish decisions that it split the nation of Israel in two. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And they went on moving forward as two separate nations, and the southern kingdom occasionally, here and there, would get a good king. But overall, the bulk of the kings in both places were bad. And they continued to lead the people away from God. 
And today we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, which has a story about the man who is probably the worst, the most wicked king in all the history of that northern kingdom of Israel. They had zero good kings, all bad kings, but he's probably the worst out of all the bad kings. And something to understand about this man, Ahab, from a political and military standpoint, he and his family were brilliant. They moved the capital of the nation to a strategic place so that they could be more well defended when wars came. He married the daughter of a king of a neighboring nation, which created a strong military alliance. But despite all of their shrewdness when it comes to politics and military stuff, the Bible's comments on Ahab and his family are continually negative. The Bible has nothing good to say about him because he led the nation of Israel to worship idols and false gods. Under his rule, the entire nation turned away from God to serve these idols. And so as a judgment on him and the nation for their rebellion against him, God sent the nation of Israel three and a half years of drought. There was no rain in the entire country for three and a half years. And a man named Elijah, a prophet, came to Ahab to deliver this news that for the next three and a half years, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, says there will be no rain in this land. And today's passage, 1 Kings chapter 18, picks up at the end of those three and a half years. So three and a half years have gone by. No rain has come in the land. And Elijah shows up to Ahab. Elijah, public enemy number one in Israel these days, shows up to the king and challenges him to this ultimate showdown to determine which God is the real God. Once and for all, we're going to figure this out. Who is the real God? And I realize we have several YHKCC students here. It's great to see you guys. If you were at school on Wednesday, I shared about this same story, but I shared slightly different about it. So it's not going to be an exact repeat. You can still pay attention and hopefully have more to learn from the story as we look at it today. And if you've been at the bridge for any length of time, you've heard us talk about idols before. If you're new to the bridge, Idols are something that come up a good amount here at the bridge. For the Israelites in today's passage, the idols they worshipped were literal statues that they bowed down to that competed with God for their worship in day-to-day life. But an idol doesn't necessarily have to be a statue. An idol is simply anything other than God that controls your heart. It's anything other than God that controls your heart. And we all have things that we do this with. It's it's wherever we place our ultimate hope and confidence in life. We all have things that we place our hope and confidence in, even if we don't make statue of those things and bow down to them and make physical sacrifices to them like the Israelites in today's passage did. And if if you're used to just reading the Bible about idols, you probably think idols are terrible, bad things, and it is not good to have idols. But the reality is most things that we make idols out of in our lives are not bad in and of themselves. They're typically good things like family or work or success or romance. And the problem is not that these things themselves are bad, but that we take these things that are good and try to make them ultimate in our lives. We take good things and try to turn them into God things. And we place our hope and expectation on these things to give us what only God can give us. And when we do that, we're setting ourselves up for harm and disappointment. That's why idols are so dangerous. That's why idols can be so destructive. And today's passage does an incredible job showing us exactly how idols harm us 
and outlining the path to freedom from the idols that enslave us. So we're going to look at this story from 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to see the destructive power of idols in our lives and how to escape that destructive power. And what, brief summary of what we're going to see is that idols enslave, but proper worship sets us free. Idols enslave, but proper worship sets us free. And we'll look at the slavery of idols, the results of idolatry, why we still choose idols, and the path to freedom. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who wants to see your people free. And God, I pray that as we look at your word today, you would show us how to find freedom through knowing and trusting you, and that we, as we go throughout our lives this week, would, would continuously seek you and seek the freedom that is found in only you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you read through the entire Bible, start to finish, one theme that's going to come up again and again and again that you, you really can't miss is the fact that proper worship leads to proper living and bad worship or bad doctrine leads to bad living. Good worship, good living, bad worship, bad living. And according to the Bible, worshiping a false god or an idol is a big form of bad doctrine or bad worship. You can think of it kind of like marriage if you're having trouble picturing this. So I am married to Justine. She's an awesome wife, fantastic woman. But just hypothetically, imagine with me that I acted like the most kind person ever. And I was a great listener. I was always available to help. But I took all of that kindness and love and attention and dedication. And rather than directing it towards Justine, I directed it towards someone else and ignored my true wife. Treated someone else like they were my wife, even though Justine is my wife. If I did that, would any of you say, Eric's such a good husband? Why not? I'm doing all the things that a good husband should do, right? But even though I'm super dedicated, and I'm allowing this key relationship to change me and transform me and make me more like the person I'm in the relationship with, I'm completely focused on a relationship with the wrong person, which means I can do all the right things, but I'm doing them towards the wrong person, and it's reshaping me in the wrong ways, and I'm not actually being a good husband towards Justine. And in a similar way, if we take all the love and devotion and dedication that we owe to God, but direct it towards something or someone else, we're not going to live properly. Because God designed us to live a certain way. He teaches us in his word the best way to live in this world. And if we're going to live properly, we need to live lives that are lived in light of the reality of who God is and who God calls us to be. And in today's passage, what we see is that these false prophets, the prophets of Baal, they're worshiping false gods that lead them to live poorly. And then they teach others to do the same. And their idols lead them to live in ways that I hope pretty much all of us would agree are terrible. So Baal worship included things like ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, and slicing yourself open with swords. Hopefully, hopefully all of us can see that those are not good things that we should be pursuing in life. Hopefully, all of us can see that any any god or idol that calls us to do those things is harmful and should be avoided, right? Hopefully, none of us have things in our lives that are that blatantly destructive, which on one level is God protecting us, protecting us from that type of harm and bringing that into our lives, but actually on another level can make our idols so much more dangerous because we all have things in our lives that draw our attention and our worship 
and our hearts away from God. And if false worship leads to wrong living, and we have things in our lives that are pulling us away from God, they're going to lead to wrong living. You can think of it kind of like this. Their idols are like Ebola, ours are like COVID. Which is more dangerous and deadly, Ebola or COVID? Ebola, far more deadly, right? But because it's so much more deadly than COVID, everyone took it far more seriously and it actually caused less deaths worldwide than COVID. The fact that COVID is less deadly than Ebola is a large reason for the fact that it's caused so many more deaths worldwide than Ebola did because people are less afraid of it. They take it less seriously and then it becomes more widespread. And in a similar way, we look at their idols and see them leading to things like ritual prostitution, child sacrifice, slicing yourself open with swords, and we say, that is bad. I don't want to get anywhere near that, which is a good thing. But then we set our hearts on things that lead us to stress, anxiety, fear, anger, sleepless nights, heartburn, other things. And because it doesn't feel that bad, we brush it off as no big deal. But the danger is that when we do that, we allow our idols to continue operating in our lives and in our hearts and continue harming us. If we want to experience the abundant life, the freedom that God wants us to have, we need to be constantly fighting against the idols that rule in our hearts. And today, as we look at this story, this passage that talks about Elijah's showdown with these idols and the false prophets who represent them. It actually shows us four steps down a pathway that idols bring us in making us their slaves. The first step is that idols lead to fear and indecision. We see this in verse 21. Elijah goes up to the people and says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And how did the people respond? The people did not answer him a word. Elijah comes to them and he asks them a simple question. Who's the real God? Is it Baal? Is it Yahweh? Just pick a side. And the people he's talking to here, they're not the false prophets who represent Baal. They're the people of Israel who have been invited from all around the nation to come watch this showdown. They're the observers. They're the ones who are there to watch. And Elijah just says, which side are you on? And they are silent. They cannot answer him. They're too afraid or too indecisive to pick a side. That's what idols do. They make us afraid and indecisive. And realize most of these people that were there, probably what they were doing is trying to sort of stand in the middle and split the difference. They were worshiping the real God, but they were also worshiping the idols so they'd have all their bases covered. They didn't see this as an issue because so many people around them were polytheistic, worshiping multiple gods, so they thought it was normal to worship multiple gods. As long as each god has his own separate realm of life that they're over, it's fine. So if Baal is in charge of making crops grow and Yahweh is in charge of protecting and guarding our nation, they're not fighting against one another or competing with one another. I can worship both of them. But the problem is they were competing against one another. See, Baal was supposed to be the fertility god. He was the one who sent the rain so that the crops would grow and you would have food to eat and you could survive. And what had just been happening for the past three and a half years in the nation of Israel? No rain. And we learned at the start of that three and a half years, the no rain was Yahweh stopping it from raining. 
based on the fact that, that for three and a half years it has not rained in the nation, this question should be totally unnecessary. They've already seen who the real God is. This drought proves that Baal is utterly powerless. And yet not only is the question necessary, the people find it genuinely challenging. They cannot answer it when it comes. Their worship of idols has left them frozen and afraid and indecisive. And that's the first thing that idols do to their followers. It makes them afraid and indecisive. But that's not all idols do. The second truth about idols that we see in this passage is that idols make us unable to rest. We see this in verse 26. Elijah, he's just outlined the rules of the competition. What we're going to do, we're going to bring two bulls. You pick one, I pick one. We each slaughter our bull, set it on an altar, and pray. And whichever God sends fire from heaven to consume the bull, that's the real God. And as soon as he finishes explaining, the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given to them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. As soon as the rules are explained, they get going and they don't stop. Now, to be fair, Elijah does give them the chance to go first. But look at the contrast between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. They rush in and go continuously and cannot stop, cannot rest, cannot wait. Well, Elijah just sits back and relaxes. Idols bring restlessness, the inability to sit still and rest. Because worship of idols is all about what we have to do to satisfy the idols. When we worship an idol, we can't rest. And again, it's true then, it's true today. Think about it, if we live in Hong Kong, so many people in our city idolize work. If you idolize work, you can't rest. You feel the need to be on call 24-7. You take calls and answer emails from work, even in the middle of your time with family. You lay awake at night in bed trying to figure out how to fix the situations at work. It's, it's literally robbing you of your ability to sleep and rest. When we put idols in our lives, whether it's work or something else, they rob us of the ability of rest. So idols make us afraid and indecisive. Idols make us unable to rest. Third, idols lead to insecurity. In verse 27, Elijah, he's been watching the prophets of Baal all morning long. They're praying and praying and nothing is happening. And then Elijah starts to tease them. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I realize today's world, we're way too PC to ever say anything like that, right? Like, if someone, some celebrity started typing this online, they would get canceled immediately. And you might be wondering why Elijah would say something so seemingly mean in this instance. And I think, I think it's for the sake of the observers. He knows, yes, there are these prophets of Baal, but there's a much larger, larger crowd of these people who are on the fence, who are trying to decide which God is real. The God that, that gives us rest and freedom or the God who calls for us to sacrifice our children. And he knows that following the false gods will lead them to harmful lifestyles and he wants to guard them and protect them. And so he does this to show how utterly powerless these false gods are. So everyone watching will know and be aware and be guarded from, from choosing to worship these false gods. But when he makes these comments, when he starts to tease the prophets of Baal, there's a reason he chose these exact things to comment on. Oh, maybe, maybe Baal can't hear you because he's just lost deep in thought. 
Maybe he can't answer because he's stuck in the bathroom. Maybe he's on a trip and he just got stuck there and can't get back in time to to help you out. You know the reason that he picked these exact things as his examples of what Baal could be doing? Because the mythology about Baal talked about him doing all of these things. Elijah's not just making these things up out of nowhere. He's taking the exact things that Baal's followers believed about Baal and throwing them back in their faces and saying, this is who your God is. He does these things. And so even before Elijah spoke these words, these thoughts were probably disturbing the prophets of Baal. Why isn't he answering? Is it him? Is there something that's keeping him from answering? Or is it us? Is he just needing to see more from us to prove that we really, really want this and deserve this? Where is he? Worshiping idols always makes people insecure because we never know whether the lack of results is due to our lack of effort or the idol's lack of power. And again, it's as true today as it was back then. David Foster Wallace, he was a writer, not a Christian, he gave a speech where he listed out some of the idols that people in our world worship, and he detailed the insecurities that each of these false types of worship lead to. I'll read it to you. Check it out. See if any of it resonates with you. We'll put it up on the screen. Can we get it up on the screen? If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. One of the great ironies of worshiping idols is they promise us power. They promise us stability. And inevitably, they leave us insecure. You can never accomplish enough that you finally made it, that you're finally secure, that you finally reached that stability that you've been aiming for. That's what idols do. Idols leave us afraid and indecisive. They leave their followers unable to rest. They leave us insecure. And then fourth, they always give increasing demands. No matter how hard you work to satisfy your idol, it is never enough. The prophets of Baal, they've been praying and dancing around all morning long, crying out for Baal to do something, anything, send this fire from heaven. And rather than giving up and saying, "Ah, our God's not going to answer us, in verse 28, they decide, let's take things to a whole new level. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They start physically harming themselves to prove to their God, we're devoted to you, we're dedicated, we will do literally whatever it takes to get your approval, to get you to answer us. And it's as true today as it was then. In worshiping idols, you can never, never do enough to satisfy their demands. Their demands are always increasing. I mean, we can think about this idol of success, being successful, the idea of being successful. Few people in history have done as much to satisfy the idol of success as Madonna. Accurate? Yeah, she's very successful. But listen to what she has to say about her experience. We'll put the quote up on the screen again. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. I push past one spell of it and discover myself a special human being but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting 
unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. We have a slide of that. We can put it up on the screen if you wanted to take a picture of it. But what she's saying here, she says she idolizes the idea of being a special human being and feels special when she does something great, but it never lasts. The idol always demands more. Even though she's become somebody by doing everything the idol demands of her, she still has to prove that she is somebody by meeting their increasing demands. And she recognizes this is never going to go away. I'm going to face this for the rest of my life. No matter how much success I find, I'm always going to have to keep leveling up, trying harder, doing more, because you can never satisfy your idols. They always have increasing demands. And if it's true for Madonna, with all the success that she has had, how much more true is it for us? Our idols are always going to demand more of us. We can never satisfy their demands. Idols enslave us. Idols harm us. They make us afraid and indecisive. They make us restless. They make us insecure. They constantly increase their demands on us. So why do we still follow them? It's a good question, right? Why do we, if they do all these terrible things to us, why do we still follow them? It's because they promise us life. They promise us life. But do they give it to us? Well, let's look at the results of idolatry. For the prophets of Baal in this story, despite all their effort, despite all their slicing themselves open, nothing happens. No fire comes down from heaven. Nothing changes. And the passage tells us twice, because it's really important, and the author doesn't want us to miss it, the fact that nothing happened. We see it in verse 26. There was no voice. No one answered. And then we see it again in verse 29. No one answered. There was no voice. No one paid attention. Idols cannot answer us. They cannot rescue or save us. They ask more, more, more of us, and yet they always leave us empty. I mean, in this situation, Baal had already been failing to answer their prayers over the past three and a half years. And then once again, he proves powerless to do anything. No fire appears on his altar after a full day of them begging him as hard as they could to send it. In direct contrast to the God of the Bible, who sends fire right away that consumes everything in the vicinity as soon as Elijah prays. The fire consumes everything, not just the cow, but the stones and the wood and the dust and the water, everything. It's such a powerful contrast to see how the God of the Bible works for his people compared to idols who never come through on their promises. Idols can't save us. They can't answer us. They have no voice. As we saw from Madonna, rather than give us what they promised when we fulfilled their demands, they just turn around and demand even more of us. And for these false prophets in this story, their idol's inability to save actually takes one big step further. Because at the end of the day, after their God has proven powerless and Elijah's has proven all-powerful, Elijah calls for the people to round up the 450 false prophets, which seems harsh to us because he's about to kill them. Seems harsh to us, but that was actually what the Israelite called, law, called for. If there's a false prophet, they were to be killed as a way of protecting the nation from becoming slaves to idols. And once again, Baal can't save his followers. All 450 of his false prophets are rounded up. All of them are slaughtered and executed by Elijah. None of them escapes. Idols enslave us by promising life, but they can never follow through on giving us what they promise.
But if that's the case, why, why do we ch- still choose to set our hearts on idols and build our lives around them? Because when we step back and we see it clearly, we can see idols impact us in such negative ways. And I'm assuming none of us want our lives impacted in these negative ways, right? Like I'm guessing none of us wakes up in the morning and is like, ah, you know what I really want today? I want to be a slave. I'm assuming none of us rolls out of bed in the morning and is like, ah, the thing I want more than anything else in life right now is to be afraid. Or no one rolls out of bed and is like, ah, I want to spend my day. The, the thing I want to do more than anything else today is spend my day trying to satisfy unrealistic and constantly changing demands that I will never be able to reach. No one wakes up thinking those things or wanting those things. And despite that, all of us still chooses to pursue idols every single day. Why? The idols enslave us. They trap us. They make us afraid. They give us unrealistic and constantly changing demands. And it'd be so easy for me to just get up here and be like, stop it. Don't do that anymore. But I think the problem is too deep for that to really be an effective solution, right? Obviously, most of us don't want that hurt in our lives, and yet we make choices and actions daily, probably more than daily, like multiple times a day, that bring them in. Why? And I think the answer is because we're blind. On a day-to-day basis, most of us can't see our idols. And, you know, after listing out the various different types of idols and the insecurity that they bring, David Foster Wallace continued. We can put the quote up on the screen. He says, the insidious things about these forms of worship, it's not that they're evil or sinful. It's not that it's sinful to want to be intelligent or to want romance or anything like that. It's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. He's saying because we never fully identified our idols and never recognized that we're looking to these things to give us what only God can give, we don't consciously recognize that's what they are. And so we go throughout our lives controlled by them without even consciously knowing they're there most of the time. There's a pastor named Tim Keller. He, he says more or less the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, there's always something underneath your inordinate and out-of-control problems desires, patterns, attitudes, and emotions. Until you find out what it is, you cannot have life and peace. Our idols, they're deep parts of our hearts that are controlled by them. If they're given the chance, our idols will ruin us. And if we want to be free of those idols and the disastrous impacts they bring in our lives so we can have life and peace, the first step is to stop being blind to them, to to identify what they are. So I have a few questions that come from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, to help us identify what the idols in our lives are. And if one or more of these resonate with you, I encourage you to write it down or take a photo of it so that you can go back and think about it more later on. The first question, what do I worry about most? What, if I failed or lost it, would cause me to feel that I did not even want to live? What do I use to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? We're about to change slides, so if you want a picture, you can snap it now. Next up, what makes me feel the most self-worth? Of what am I the proudest? What prayer, unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would make me happy? I realize these are some difficult questions, uncomfortable questions probably, but the reality is if we want freedom from our idols, step one is identifying what they are. 
and realize this, this process of identification, it's going to take a long time, probably your whole life. You'll, you'll maybe discover a little bit right now and a little bit more tomorrow and a little bit more the next day. And you know, for me personally, I've spent months and years trying to dig through some of the idols in my heart. And I've even like, spent lots of time with professional counselors trying to figure this stuff out. And despite all the time I've spent trying to focus on it, I still discover on a regular basis new ways that they are harming me and impacting me. This isn't a one-time exercise. It's a journey that's going to take the rest of our lives. But it's a worthwhile journey because it's the first step in the path to freedom. So let's look at the path to freedom. Because once we identify our idols, the question then becomes, what do we do about them? Well, as we've been seeing, bad doctrine, bad worship leads to bad living. Proper worship leads to proper living. And so in this passage, we can actually see how proper worship rewrites the destructive narrative of the idols. We saw at the start how the prophets of Baal were enslaved and harmed by their idolatry. But when we contrast that with Elijah, we see the story totally gets flipped on its head. Remember, the idols enslaved people in fear and indecision. But Elijah, he's got proper worship of the true God. And so even though he's public enemy number one in Israel, showing his face could get him killed just for being there. It doesn't matter. He comes, he shows his face, he puts his life in danger and stands boldly for God because he has proper worship that gives him confidence instead of fear. We saw that idolatry leads to restlessness. They can't sit still. They have to constantly stay engaged in doing stuff. And yet, what does Elijah do? He knows that God works on his behalf. So while everyone else is going crazy, dancing and exhausting themselves and slicing themselves with swords, he just sits back and relaxes all day, occasionally makes fun of them for how ridiculous they're being, and rests. We saw that idolatry leads to insecurity. But Elijah Oh, he's super secure, probably too secure for some of us, right? Like, he's so secure that he's teasing the other prophets because of their God's weakness. That, that makes some of us uncomfortable. But when it's time for Elijah to pray for fire from heaven, he doesn't just get there and pray for fire from heaven. No, he, he has them pour buckets of water on top of the altar just to show off at how powerful his God is because he is so secure from his proper worship. And then we saw that idols always have increasing demands. You can never do enough to satisfy them. But Elijah doesn't feel any need to put on a performance, doesn't feel a need to do something great to make God like him enough. No, he just prays and God works for him in a wonderful, powerful, miraculous way. If you contrast Elijah's way of living with the prophets of Baal, doesn't Elijah's way of living sound so much more like the way you want to live? With fearlessness, ability to rest, confidence, and a God who works for you? So how do we get that? Well, it's by recognizing the powerlessness of our idols, turning from them, and trusting God instead. As we already said, step one, identify what your idols are. The next step, once you've identified them, take note of how they're ruining your life. Right? We follow idols because we think that they will give us the good life, so intentionally showing us how they're robbing us of the good life actually robs them of their power. So for me, I idolize being in control. So taking a step back and just asking, how does that harm me? Well, when I feel out of control, I get stressed and I lie awake at night trying to figure out how to fix the situation. If there's a relationship and I'm trying to get something to happen there and get other people to do certain things and I feel out of control, I might try to manipulate them, which causes issues in the relationship. If I get really stressed and anxious, it messes with my stomach and I feel just physically sick. 
And so if I simply let myself live in default mode without stopping to be aware of what I'm doing, I believe the best life possible is the one where I'm in control. But when I step back and look at what my desire for control really does, it robs me of sleep, it ruins my relationships, and it robs me of physical health. And the more I remind myself of the actual results of my idolatry, the more my desire for control is just going to lose its grip on me because I'm going to see it's harming me. I don't want that harm in my life. And remember, it's a lifetime process, not a one-time thing. It's going to be a slow process. It's going to be a gradual process. You're going to think you had a great step forward and wake up the next morning and be like, what happened yesterday? And feel like you're right back to square one. But we have to keep working at it. Keep deconstructing the narrative of our idols so we can rob them of our power. And then we need to put something else in their place. As we start reminding ourselves of the lack of power that our idols have, remind ourselves of God's power in their place. And this is a super key step because if we show ourselves how powerless our idols are, but don't replace it with proper worship, we're going to get rid of that idol and just replace it with another idol that's equally harmful. But instead, we need to replace our idols with proper worship. It's crazy the contrast between God and idols. You know, the idols in today's passage, they demanded that, that their followers cut themselves with spears to show how dedicated to their God they are. But you know what the God of the Bible does? He comes to earth in the person of Jesus and allows himself to be stabbed and killed with a spear to show you how devoted to you he is. He gives his own life for us. An idol will never, ever do that for you. Idols promise us the world. They constantly demand more of us. They take whatever they can get from us, all while giving us nothing in return. But our God gives us himself. And why does he do that? Well, as Elijah prays in verse 37, it's so that he can turn our hearts back to him. If you give them the chance, the idols in your life, they will enslave you, they will rob you, without, even, without you even being aware of what's happening. The freedom from this trap comes when we recognize our false worship, turn from it, and practice proper worship instead. And it's a slow process, a gradual, a lifelong process of recognizing our idols, reminding us how they're harming us, turning back to God again and again. But it's worth it because it's how we find freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives freedom, that you want us to be free. You don't want us to be trapped by the idols that enslave us. Pray that you would show us the idols in our lives, help us to see how they're robbing us of true life, and give us true life in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.